We are turning back to the book of Acts. And last week, we left Paul and his team as they were preparing to travel to Macedonia. God had guided them eventually to take the gospel to Europe. Of course, it wasn't known as Europe back then, but it was part of the process that ended eventually with the gospel making its way here to England. And the first step in Europe is the city of Philippi. So we're going to pick up at chapter 16, verse 11. In the Church Bible, that's page 1112. Acts 16, 11. And I'll read down to the end of chapter 16. Luke says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushing in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. This is God's word. Last time we learned that Paul and his team, which includes Luke, the author of Acts, that team had arrived at Troas. And now, in response to God's guidance, they enter the region of Macedonia. And they get there by sailing to Neapolis. And once they've landed, they travel then to the city of Philippi. And the significant point about Philippi is that it's a Roman colony, and it's the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We're told that in verse 12. That detail will become very important later on. This is a city where Roman citizenship was highly prized. It was, in fact, full of retired Roman soldiers. And because it was a Roman colony, its citizens were exempt from many of the usual taxes. So these people were proud to be Romans, and it paid for them to be Romans. Anything that threatens to disturb their privileges is not going to be well received in Philippi. We can keep that detail in our heads. Then Luke tells us this in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. There are a couple of things that are significant here. First of all, we might remember what Paul normally does in a new city. He normally goes to the Jewish synagogue. He uses that as his starting point. But apparently in Philippi, there is no synagogue. That may be because there weren't enough Jewish men. Ten men were required to start a synagogue. And you'll notice that Paul and his team can only find women. But then notice where they go to find the women. Outside the city gate. It seems then that Jewish meetings weren't allowed inside the city. In cities this far away from Jerusalem, 
Judaism tended to be seen as a foreign cult. The Romans were fine with people who worshipped lots of gods, but they were highly suspicious of people who only worshipped one god. If you had lots of gods, you weren't likely to be overly loyal to any one of them. But if you only worshipped one, well, you might put your loyalty to that god above your loyalty to Rome and above your loyalty to the Roman emperor. So it seems that in Philippi, monotheists, that's people who worship one god, were a small minority, and they were ostracized by society. They were forced to meet outside the city. Well, somehow Paul and his team are aware of the situation, and somehow they know there are some people interested in the God of the Old Testament. Luke says, we expected to find a place of prayer by the river. That seems to be a way of talking about a meeting for Jews when there's no synagogue. And what they find there is a group of women. Paul is a Jewish rabbi. That was his training before he met Jesus. And what he does here would be highly unusual for a rabbi. He sits and talks with this group of women. Now, let me take a moment to say this when it comes to Paul's attitude to women. Paul often gets a very bad press in that area. In fact, he's often presented as a woman hater. But in fact, any time Paul teaches a restriction on what women can do, he bases it on the order God set up at creation. In other words, he doesn't present it as his own great idea. He traces it back always to God's original blueprint. And when it comes to Paul's practice, what he actually did in day-to-day ministry, it's amazing how much he involved women. Certainly, he involved them far more than was normal in the culture of his day. In fact, later, when he writes a letter to the Philippians, he mentions two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, who, he says, have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So let's not buy into this misinformation that Paul was against women. He worked with women and alongside women. And whenever he put any kind of restriction on women's ministry, it was always based on God's word not any personal issue that he had with women. We need to be careful to follow Paul's example, both in his willingness to say no where God says no, and also in his willingness to encourage and involve women right up to the point where God says no. And as far as I can see, the point where God says no is at the point of being given the responsibilities that go with eldership. That's where Scripture draws the line. And we should not draw the line any earlier than that. Certainly Paul himself did not draw the line earlier than that. That's just a side point. I'm throwing that in for free this morning. But the main point here is that when Paul arrives in this proud Roman city, 
he goes looking for those who are ready to hear. You'll notice he doesn't head to the main square of the city and pull out a loud healer. He doesn't do a mass distribution of leaflets in Philippi. He hears about this little group of ladies who are worshippers of God. He seeks them out and sits down with them and talks to them. The term worshipper of God is used about Lydia in verse 14. It seems to mean someone who worships the God of Israel, but isn't actually a Jew. Paul assumes that people who are willing to meet and worship God, despite the difficulties, people like that might be ready and willing to hear about God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And sure enough, at least one of them does hear And she responds. Verse 14 says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. It's important then to see both aspects of what's going on here. On the one hand, Lydia's salvation is entirely God's work. He opened Lydia's heart. We've seen before in Acts that even the faith to believe is a gift from God. We can't control who believes. We don't know who the right people to talk to are. Because no one's the right person until God opens their heart. Even the nicest people have hearts that are barred and bolted to the gospel until God opens their hearts. And at the same time, Paul knows that he has limited opportunities to talk to people. He can't speak to everyone, and so he tries to be wise. He doesn't take a random approach in his evangelism. He takes an intentional approach. He looks for people who are ready to hear. Ultimately, of course, he doesn't know who's going to respond, but he tries to make the most of the time he has. So he starts with these ladies who are already showing interest in the one true God. And I think that's the pattern for us to follow. We can't speak to everybody. But when we sense someone is showing an interest, we can make a point of following up that interest. Yes, in an ultimate sense, we should never give up on anyone. Even the person who seems most disinterested can have a lot going on in their heart. And God can give us a particular burden for someone who seems to be closed off. He's also put friends and family members in our path. But aside from that, given that we can't focus on everybody, let's focus on those who seem to be searching for God. Well, ultimately, Lydia was not the only one who responded in Philippi. But Luke does focus on her, and he does it because her home becomes the base of the Philippian church. She may well have been a widow, but her line of business indicates that she was a wealthy woman, unlike many widows at the time. Purple cloth was worn by wealthy people, and so dealers in purple cloth tended to be well off. And obviously Lydia's home was big enough to accommodate Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke as well as the members of her household, however many they were. 
Well then, from their base at Lydia's house, Paul and his team continue their work. And they soon discover that the good news is seen as a threat. If dealing in purple cloth was a lucrative business, fortune-telling was equally, if not more, lucrative. Luke tells us about a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. He doesn't say how accurate this particular girl was, but he does tell us that she was being exploited, both by a spirit and by her owners. The owners were making a great deal of money out of her. Somehow she latches on to Paul and his team, and for many days she follows them around, shouting in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And we might think, well, that's good. Some free publicity for the church. Actually, it wasn't necessarily good at all. For one thing, publicity from a demon is never good. And for another thing, what the demon is saying through this girl is potentially very misleading. She talks about the Most High God. And sure enough, when Jews said that, they meant Yahweh, the God of Israel. But the same title was used for the Greek god Zeus. And since there weren't many Jews in Philippi, most people who heard this would have assumed Paul was preaching about Zeus. Then, in addition to that, the original text says literally, these men are telling you a way to be saved, not the way. Paul has a revolutionary message about Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so he could do without free publicity that says, come and hear about another way to Zeus or whatever God you think is supreme. For Romans, that was more likely to kill their interest than fuel it. As far as they were concerned, there were hundreds of ways already. What's the big deal about just another one? So whenever we realize the misleading message this girl was giving, and when we remember that she is being exploited herself, both by an evil spirit and by human masters, it's not surprising that we read in verse 18, finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. What Paul does is great for the slave girl. But the first time that her owners hear the name Jesus Christ, it means the end of their source of income. The moment the spirit leaves the girl, the owner's hope of making money also leaves. So the violent reaction against Paul and Silas is nothing to do with the owner's religious convictions. It's purely about money. They see Jesus as a threat. 
because of the freedom he's brought to this girl. And so they turn against Jesus' messengers. The lesson here is that we are naive if we think people's unbelief is always due to some intellectual problem they have with the gospel. Or because we haven't explained the gospel clearly enough. That may sometimes be true. But very often people reject the gospel because they see the gospel as a threat to something they hold dear. For these owners, it was money. For others, it's their own freedom to live exactly how they like. Aldous Huxley was a famous atheist philosopher. And he was very honest about why people reject God in many cases. He said, the person who rejects belief in God does so because they want to prove that there's no valid reason why they personally should not do as they want to do. And Huxley went on to say that he rejected belief in God because he wanted to be free from a certain system of morality. He said that he and his friends objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Huxley was honest enough to understand that once we've acknowledged there's a God, then we must also acknowledge that he has a claim on our lives. And so rather than submit to God's authority, Huxley decided to deny God's existence. That was it. There was no great philosophical barrier to belief in his case. There was no evidence that he found against the truth of the Bible. No, denying God's existence was just convenient for him. It allowed him to live as he pleased. Many people reject the good news because they love being their own God. And they see the good news as a threat to that. Because the good news calls them ultimately to bow to God the Father Almighty. Others, like these slave owners, love the money they make out of exploitation. And the good news is a threat to that. It calls them to follow Jesus and lay down their lives for others, not exploit them. The good news of Jesus comes to men and women to set them free. And so those involved in exploiting and oppressing those men and women are not going to like it. Whether that exploitation is through human trafficking or prostitution or drugs or even more respectable forms of exploitation like pornography or online betting or selling super cheap booze to people. What I'm trying to say is, when people are in love with sin, and when they are profiting from sin, the gospel is threatening. That's true on the small individual scale, and it's true on the large scale too. Whole industries can be opposed to the gospel. People don't always reject the gospel because it doesn't make sense to them. Often they reject it because it makes a whole lot of sense and they're threatened by it. 
Well, here in Philippi, the marketplace had a raised judgment seat where cases were to be tried. But look what happens here. There is no trial. The force of public opinion just brushes justice aside. Of course, the owners don't mention their real grievance that they have lost earning power. Instead, they play on the prejudices of the crowd. In verse 20, these men are Jews. That has nothing to do with the real issue. But it's very clever. We already know that this city is suspicious of Jews. Remember, they had to meet outside the city walls. These men are Jews, they say, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The slave owners have no evidence for that at all. But they do a great job of stirring up the crowd's prejudice and fears. These Jews are going to ruin our great Roman way of life. And the crowd just eat it up. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. What have Paul and Silas done to end up as public enemies numbers one and two? What have they done to warrant being maximum security prisoners? They set a young girl free. In the power of Jesus Christ, they delivered her from spiritual and human oppression. They brought deliverance. But in doing so, they threatened an evil system of generating wealth. And so they have become dangerous men. And instead of getting justice from the magistrates, instead of being given opportunity to speak and defend themselves, they get stripped, beaten, severely flogged, and thrown into prison. All at the magistrates' orders. But look what happens next. In the midst of this injustice and violence, verse 25, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What we see here is the persuasive power of authentic faith in a powerful God. Someone has said that a Christian is a living explanation. So we must tell a good story with our life. In other words, your life and mine are living explanations of the trustworthiness and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. If we praise him when everything is going well for us, 
it doesn't raise any eyebrows with those who are watching us. Who wouldn't praise God when their life is great? But when things go against us, when life starts falling apart around us, that's the point where we really do become living explanations. If we get bitter and angry with God, if we go into a spiral of panic and despair, what are we explaining to those who watch us? Those who know we're Christians? We're explaining to them that Jesus is neither trustworthy nor sufficient for us. When trouble hits us, we don't trust him anymore. And when things are taken away from us, he isn't enough for us. That's the negative side. But when difficulties come and we are able to show authentic trust in God, and I don't mean a fake smile, I mean genuine trust. When we are able to do that, then we are telling a powerful story about our Savior and our God. We're telling others that he is big enough and dependable enough for even the biggest storms life can throw at us. Even the storms of unjust treatment. That's what Paul and Silas are doing. At midnight in the inner cell of the prison. Their faith in God is loud enough for the whole prison to hear it. And so when the earthquake comes and the jailer wakes up, even if he'd been asleep during this midnight sing-along, he knows that this earthquake is not an accident. It's somehow connected to these men with unshakable trust in their God. And if their God can inspire the kind of faith that keeps on singing at midnight in the stocks, then the jailer wants to get in the right with that God. Notice how he puts it in verse 30. What must I do to be saved? Now we might ask, does he know exactly what he's asking? Maybe not. Remember, the slave girl followed them around talking about being saved. Maybe that's where he got it from. He may not know exactly what he's asking. But he's seen enough to know that the God of Paul and Silas must be an awesome God. He must be for them to believe in him so deeply and trust him so deeply. He must be an awesome God if he'd shake the prison in response to their prayers. Paul and Silas are very happy to explain the good news to this man. Verse 31 says, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. In the context of this city where the gospel is seen as a threat, people come to believe in Jesus. And at least part of the reason is that they've seen evidence of authentic faith 
in a powerful God. True living faith is persuasive. When we show by our lives that Jesus really, truly is all we need, people notice. They might not all come to believe, but over time they will notice, and some will believe. Finally in this passage, we see a time for insisting on personal rights for the sake of the church. A few weeks ago I said that as Christians we don't want to be known as people who are always whining about our rights. But here we see Paul standing up for his rights. Look again at these final verses. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Earlier on, at the very beginning, we learned that Philippi was a Roman colony. We learned that it was a city where Roman citizenship was highly prized. And it just so happens that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And historians tell us it was against Roman law to beat a Roman citizen. Never mind doing that and a whole lot else without even the pretense of a proper trial. The magistrates in Philippi have stepped out of line in a major way. In fact, they could lose their positions because of it. That's why verse 38 says they were alarmed. But why does Paul insist on his rights? Actually, if he had properly insisted on his rights, he would have taken this to a higher authority in the Roman system. But still, why does he insist on a public show of apology from the magistrates? Well, imagine the result if Paul and Silas had just tiptoed away like the magistrates wanted them to. What would that have meant for the brand new believers left behind in Philippi? It would mean they would be associated in people's minds with those dangerous troublemakers, Paul and Silas. Those men who the magistrates punished for being anti-Roman. In that atmosphere, the witness of the church would have been a non-starter. Now can you see the wisdom of what Paul does here? By insisting that the magistrates publicly acknowledge their mistake, Paul is smoothing the way for the church that he's leaving behind. Now it's certainly possible that a mob will rise up against the Christians again. But it's highly unlikely the magistrates will be so negligent again. 
they will at least insist on a proper hearing and proper evidence before they beat any more Christians and throw them into jail. That's surely part of the encouragement that Paul is able to give the believers when he pays them a final visit in verse 40. He's able to say to them, I've done what I can to make sure what happened to me won't happen to you. Paul was a mature enough Christian to deal with injustice that was inflicted on him personally. In fact, time after time, he put up with it without ever mentioning his rights. But occasionally, for the sake of other believers, he does what he does here. He uses his rights as a Roman citizen to try and give some protection to the church. So when you and I think about this question of our rights as Christians, and if any of us are ever in a situation where we're considering standing up for our rights, let's take Paul's approach. If we're going to do it, let's make sure it's for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ, not for our own personal vindication or compensation or publicity. As we follow these first missionaries around, we get a sense that they just lived and breathed for the sake of Jesus. Maybe, in fact, it almost seems unreal to us. Didn't Paul ever just put his feet up and watch Match of the Day? Didn't he ever play a round of golf? Maybe he did, or whatever the equivalent was. Maybe he had a season ticket to the chariot races. But I suspect that even then, his mind would have been on God's glory. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. As we follow these servants of God, we don't see monks who abandoned real life. But we do see people who in all of their thinking And all of their actions lived for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom. This morning, let's ask God to give us that same passion in our hearts. Let's ask him as we sing the song, Let Your Kingdom Come.